Hello, wrestling fans. My name is Al Getz, and welcome to another all-new, action-packed episode of Charting the Territories. I'm here with my co-host, John Boucher. John, how are you in this uh, late October weather? It's, yeah, it's really, it's raining in New York. We got the rain delay. I'm, I'm imagining we both have the uh, Yankees-Astros game on mute. Yeah, we're, uh, we're recording this uh, <laughs> Sunday, October 23rd. So right now it's supposed to be game four of the ALCS, but they are in a weather delay. We saw earlier today the Philadelphia Phillies advance to the World Series. And now we're going yep. to see uh, if Houston is going to do it or if the Yankees can pull off the almost impossible. And in fact, what was impossible until the Yankees had it done to them. And that was coming back from a 3-0 deficit <laughs> yeah. in a championship series. But enough talk about baseball. This is a yeah. wrestling podcast. Yeah. Damn it. Damn it. This month, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1966 in Leroy McGurk's territory, including a wrestler whose real-life credentials sound too good to be true. So are they? We'll discuss the fascinating and mostly true details of the life of Johnny Zenda. We'll also discuss gorgeous George Jr., who is, of course, no relation to George Wagner. But what's a little detail like that matter in the world of pro wrestling? And, of course, we'll look at the rest of the roster, the biggest feuds, a little who's who with two masked tag teams and more. And, of course, all our regular monthly features, including This Month I Learned, John plays Gordon Soli's championship wrestling trivia and shit John bought me off eBay. But first, we yep. need to talk about the uh, latest release yeah. from Charting the Territories, and that is a book. And this is something I have been working on for a really long time. I've sort of been dabbling around doing it, wanting to do it, but never really, you know, getting past the point of no return. And I finally, earlier this summer, I said, you know what, this book needs to come out. We need to do it. The longer I keep putting it off, the less likely it is that I'll actually do it. So we got it. And it's, uh, I, I think it came out really, really well. It's a look at the McGurk territory covering the years 1971 to 1973. And yeah. really it's, it's more of a reference book or a reference manual than, than a quote unquote book book, but it's a really unique look at all the wrestlers who worked in Leroy's territory from 1971 to 1973 using the statistics we talk about here on the podcast, the spot rating and the FLW score to measure a wrestler's role in the territory. We also have year by year rankings, detailed listings of some of the biggest feuds where we have uh, in each town, just like we do on the blog with our anatomy of a feud, we list the detailed results where we have them so you can see what happened in each match that builds to the rematch with a special stipulation the following week. There's also the most complete listing of house show records you'll ever find for this territory. In total, for a three-year period, 2,499 house shows. Wowie wow. And in case you're wondering, Al, why couldn't you get to 2,500? A, first off, I think 2,499 sounds really cool. Um, I originally, as, as I was putting this together, I, I was stuck at 2,496 or 2,497 for the longest time. And I was hoping to get above 2,500 by, you know, at least a couple. So I could say over 2,500 results. Yeah. yeah. But 
I ended up, I actually had 2,500, but one of those shows was a spot show in a small town in Missouri, and the wrestlers advertised on that show, almost all of them were also advertised in one of Leroy's regular towns the same night. So I didn't feel great. Uh, It's very possible the newspaper got the date of that spot show wrong Uh or something else happened. But I just felt weird enough about, you know, getting it in there that I didn't want to put it in just to say I had 2,500. So that's why. But it's available worldwide on Amazon. And it's uh, it's done on print on demand. So if you're overseas, you don't have to worry about excessive shipping costs to get it to you from the U.S. because they'll print it uh, locally and send it out to you. And if you want an autographed copy, go to chartingtheterritories.com. There's a link at the top of the page. Um, you can order by PayPal. And if you live in the continental 48 states, you can order it that way. And I'll autograph the book. I'll send you a four by six color photo. And I want to be very clear. That's not a photo of me. (laughs) It's a photo of one of these stars or future stars that work the territory. It's basically most of the main eventers and upper mid carters and some of the younger guys that went on to become stars like Backlund, uh, Chuck O'Connor, Big John Studd, uh, Ali Vaziri, the Iron Sheik, and a few others. And I also want to make a note. There's no pictures of the three uh, controversial wrestlers who, uh, in this day and age, w- would be canceled. So, no Grizz, no <laughs> Bob Sweetan, no Terry Garvin. Uh, but a uh, picture of, you know, Bill Watts or Roger Kirby, uh, so many of the top stars in the territory. You get one of those. Plus, I'll send you info on how to get $4 off your next order. Because, yes, there will be more books. This is the first in a series of books from Charting the Territories. And, if you've seen the book or if you've already ordered the book, if you like the cover, if you like the artwork on the front and back cover, you need to thank my co-host, John Boucher, because that was his doing. Yes. And if you don't like it, then just... If you don't like it, don't it's my fault. It. If you like don't it, it's it. it's John's doing. <laughs> I like that arrangement as well. Yeah. Question also about the, the four by six. I've had several people ask uh, this, this question. I, I wasn't sure how to answer it, so I figured now is a great... If someone actually wants a four by six photo of you, will you accommodate that request? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so every, everyone I, who asked me... Yes, I, I'm completely yeah. unprepared, but sure, if, if they really <laughs> want a four by six... If, well, this way, if that's going to get them to buy the book, then they, yeah, we'll make it happen. For, for sure. Shot. So... <laughs> While our so obviously to our listeners, uh, hopefully a lot of you have already bought the book. I, I will say, I'm. It's been selling above my very reasonable and very meager expectations. I've been very happy to see how it's been selling, uh, but I also, you know, I, I'm I'm not getting rich off of it. Believe me, <laughs> at this point, I think I've barely paid off. Um, Chris Swisher, who provided uh, a couple hundred <laughs> photographs for the book, I pretty much made enough to pay him. And uh, so, but we still have the thousands of dollars I spent traveling to state libraries and archives to oh, yeah. uh, do this research that I will never recoup. And that's fine by me. But uh, if you like what we do on the podcast, if you like the stats you see on the blog, the book is a really neat way to have a three year period of time all in the palm of your hands. So while our listeners are busy buying books, John is busy buying me uh, 
obscure media formats off of eBay. And of course, some people might say the, uh, the an actual physical book is getting to that, but I still think it's a little more prevalent than what John sent me this month. Now, of course, in the past, you've sent me a couple of albums, phonographs, and I do have a record player, so I was able to listen to the um, the entrance themes from Titanus and El Ring, and of course, the little... Uh, the small little flexible record that came with Gordon Soley's championship trivia game. But this one, I have no way of playing. But it's a cool little uh, p- it's a cool little objet d'art. It's a it's a laser disc <laughs> uh, for the um, video that Pro Wrestling Illustrated, one of the two videos they put out uh, in the eighties, and this is Lords of the Ring Superstars and Super Bouts. And it yeah. includes, uh, so it's a total, it's a 60 minute runtime. So I don't know if they're showing these complete matches or clips, but no. it's got, okay, so no. So it's clips of Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich, the uh, title change from the first Parade of Champions, and the uh, dog collar match from Starcade 1983, Roddy Piper versus Greg Valentine, also has music by George Thorogood and the Destroyers. Yep. They're, uh, my favorite, the, the thing I remember most from this, v, I had the VHS tape when I was a kid. I think I still have my original copy buried in a box somewhere. But the the clip that I remember the most from this, that made the most impact on me, was there was the, they had that clip of Randy Savage pile driving Ricky Morton through the table. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And that was the first. And it's hard to explain like how crazy it was to see that. Yeah, by like today's by today's standards, like oh, a table spot. But no, back yeah. then this was this was really really radical. Now I, I remember they used to advertise these videos in the after mags, and I think the VHS copies cost fifty dollars or sixty dollars <laughs> because yeah. back in those days, uh, that's that was the going price to own videos uh, because I guess they had. Uh, arrangements with video stores, video rental stores uh, to work together. And so making the price so expensive, it made it prohibitive for people to buy it, forcing them to go to their local video store to rent it. So this LaserDisc is also pretty unique because it's it's in a self-contained case. And if you huh. don't know what LaserDiscs are, uh, it's hard to explain. But literally, you it, like it's not like a record where there's a sleeve and you take it out and then place it on your turntable. I guess you insert this whole thing, cover and all, into the player, and it the, there it looks like there's a couple of little levers that get pushed that will then take the disc out. Is that is that right, John? Does that I've, make sense? I've never I've never had never owned a laserdisc player my 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 downstairs neighbor in these condos i grew up in had one he was like a he had like all the latest stuff you know he had he had a bunch of uh like music videos like like she's a beauty by the tubes on laserdisc and stuff like that but i never i was never allowed to touch it okay well i've seen but there are laserdisc players where similar to a record player you take the disc out and take put you just put the disc into the player but this appears to be something completely different so i'll post a picture of it on twitter and perhaps one of our uh listeners can can tell us what the heck it is and tell us if there's if there's a uh, piece of hardware i can buy that will allow me to play this because i would love to see Lords of the Ring Superstars and Super Bouts, produced by uh, 
Gordon Soley. Uh, no, hosted. Hosted by Gordon Soley and Bill Apter. Yeah. So thank you for that. I, I guess you're if welcome. we keep on going, you're going to send me uh, some sort of uh, smoke signals, uh, <laughs> some sort of old wrestling uh, match that was done in uh, lithograph or, or cave drawings. <laughs> cave drawings, that'd be a good one. That would be pretty cool. Well, we're not going back that far this not month yet. on the podcast, but we're going to a time before either you or I were born, and that is the fall of 1966. And the top wrestlers in Leora McGurk's territory at the time, on the babyface side, you have Danny Hodge, Jerry Kozak, Jack Briscoe, and Mike Clancy. And on the heel side, you have Chris Tolis, the Assassins, the Medics, and Rocky Montero. So there's two heel tag teams. And as we've talked about when we've covered 1966 in the past, they did really big business earlier in the year with the Assassins and the Kentuckians. And ever since then, they've always seemed to have at least one regular tag team in. Um, of course, it was the Medics in the summer. And now we have both the Assassins and the Medics. And of course, this version of the Assassins were John. Uh, it's Ernesto and Hamilton, correct? Correct. Ernesto and Hamilton. And we've it's always been believed that Ernesto was assassin number one and Hamilton was assassin number two. Now, in later years, when Ernesto uh, retired and Jody was the captain, he was generally billed as number one. And, and this is important because on November 5th, 1966, during the live TV in Oklahoma City, Assassin number one defeated Danny Hodge to win the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. So can we prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was Renesto? We're pretty sure it is, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, no. But what we do know is this. Hamilton and Renesto had been teaming up in Arizona over the summer, but Hamilton went to Heart of America for a couple of weeks in October while Ernesto seems to take a few weeks off. On October 31st, Assassin Number 1 has his first match back in this territory, and he wrestles in Tulsa. Assassin Number 1 also wrestled on November 4th in Oklahoma City. And this had to have been Ernesto, because Hamilton, as himself, wrestled Gene Kaniski in St. Joseph, Missouri, that same night. So November 4th, Assassin Number 1 absolutely was Ernesto, and the next night, Assassin number one defeats Hodge for the title. So it stands to reason that he was also Assassin number one on November 5th. Now, is it possible that at times the two switched roles? It's possible. I, I'd say it's unlikely, but definitely not impossible. If we recall the Infernos, uh, first Frankie Kane and Rocky Smith, and then later Rocky and Curtis Smith, one of them wore a built-up boot and was often referred to as Clubfoot Inferno. But in reality, both men switched up who would portray the Clubfoot Inferno uh, because the boot was actually quite uncomfortable to wear because it literally was built up higher than the other. So it was pretty awkward to work in. So the two Infernos would switch up who was Clubfoot from time to time. Huh. Another example... 
In the 1970s, Tio and Tapu, the two Samoan wrestlers, were wrestling for the Culkins in Mississippi as the Mongolians, and they're managed by Percy Pringle. There were numerous occasions where the Culkins were running two shows on the same night with split crews, and they'd send one of the Mongolians to one town and one of the Mongolians to the other, but in the ads for both, they were listed as Mongolian number one. Mm. So... I don't know if I'd be willing to bet a gajillion dollars that assassin number one was always Tom Renesto during this run. However, it's the most likely scenario, given that on at least one occasion, Jody Hamilton was wrestling somewhere else on the same night assassin number one was in Oklahoma. So, John, any other examples you can think of of tag teams where we're not really sure, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, which one was number one and which one was number two? Huh, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Um, yeah, I think, especially in later years, it's pretty easy to figure out which assassin was Jody Hamilton. And which was Hercules Hernandez. Yeah, and, yes. <laughs> yes, certainly which one was Hercules Hernandez, let alone anyone else, uh, you know, anyone a few years younger than Jody at the time. And then so, they threw in, was it Mr. Saito as assassin number three for a while? This so was in was, Florida. Uh, they, well, I... And I've never been sure if he was assassin number three or assassin number two, because Roger Smith left. Yeah. And then Saido came in and I've heard that they tried to pretend it was the same guy. And then he got unmasked and revealed as Mr. Saito. And then he stayed and wrestled without the mask as Saito for a little while. But they tried to play it off like it was... That, that number two was Saida the whole time. It could be wrong, and it could have been number three, but that actually leads into what we're about to discuss mm. with the medics. Oh, yeah. They were billed as returning to the territory in December after having been here in the summer, except it wasn't the same team. In the summer, the medics were unmasked and identified as Tony Gonzalez and Dan Ellis. When this version came in, it was said that one of them had been part of the team that was here over the summer, and he brought a different person with him to be his partner. However, as they were finishing up their run in early 1967, they were unmasked and identified as two completely different wrestlers, Chuck Conley and John Higgins. So neither of them were part of the team that were here over the summer. So it's weird that they claimed that one of them was one of the ones that were here earlier when they had been unmasked and these ones had been unmasked. So it's just very huh. confusing, but uh, that's what Conley. they call mass confusion. <laughs> Conley was, was one of the uh, scuffling hillbillies yes. at one time, wasn't he? He was one of the scuffling hillbillies with, uh, I think he was with Garrett. Uh, huh. Yeah, because I think it was Chuck Conley and Willie Conley. And Willie Conley was Willie Garrett, a.k.a. Billy Garrett. Ah, uh, okay. And Higgins then, doesn't yeah. ring a bell for me. Higgins doesn't ring a bell for me either. It doesn't really seem to show up much of anywhere else. So who knows? But back to the Assassins and the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. Assassin number one would lose the title back to Danny Hodge on December 19th in Tulsa. And again on December 20th in Little Rock. And again on December 21st in Springfield. And again on December 22nd in Wichita Falls. And just for the hell of it, in at least two of those matches, Hodge won one of the falls by disqualification, but still uh, was considered having won the title. 
So add this to my never-ending series, when is a title change not a title change when it isn't, unless it is. Yeah, never-ending. Um, we've Oof. seen this, you know, so uh, I saw on Twitter a few weeks ago, Mike Mooneyham uh, from the uh, newspaper in South Carolina, uh, always has a wrestling column there every week going back decades. But he posted something about a title change uh, in Georgia that happened on a disqualification. And a bunch of people responded, I didn't think that it could happen. Again, the rules of the NWA were, were not set in stone. They were very malleable. And uh, when a territory wanted to enforce a certain rule set, they did. And when they didn't, they just sort of didn't. So this concept of titles can't change hands on a DQ. Now, there are times where there's a rematch with a stipulation that the disqualification rule is waived and a disqualification, quote unquote, counts the same as a pinfall as it pertains to title changes. But there are other times where it's just a regular title match and someone wins one of the falls by DQ, but still ends up winning the title after winning the second fall. This is just, uh, they oftentimes made up the rules as they went along. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, questions like this are one of the things that keep me up at night. Oh. And speaking of questions and things that keep John up at night, he knows oh, he no. has to prepare once a again. month, you know, for oh. my, what's fast becoming my favorite segment. <laughs> John plays Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. John, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. First I'm ready one, to do it. First one is really easy. Ah, oh, jeez. Which wrestler teamed with Dusty Rhodes to form the famed Outlaws tag team? That would be Dick Murdoch. Correct. All right. This next one, just answer the question. Don't overthink it. The question is, what is a belly-to-back suplex? A suplex where you grab a guy around the waist. Uh, it's like a German suplex, correct? Is that yeah? Is that, I mean, is that the answer the overhead have, suplex. Wrap yeah. your hands the guy's waist, and you're throwing backwards, belly to back, right? Boom. Yeah. Okay. So the okay. the answer they have on the card is a wrestling hold where an opponent is hoisted above another's head to crash to the canvas on his back. Okay, not not the Magnum TA suplex. Uh, no, that's the belly to belly. That's yeah. a big. That's a yes. That's different. All right, this one this one might stump you. Oh jeez. <laughs> Who was Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazines? Most popular wrestler in 1982. 1982. Yeah. Uh, I'll go with Bob Backlund. Is that your final answer? What final answer? Uh, that is incorrect. Okay. According to the readers of Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine, their most their favorite most popular wrestler in 1982 was Andre the Giant. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we just talked about how the wrestling promotions didn't necessarily have official rules and that they were malleable. 
So this question is going to be uh, <laughs> interesting because the question is, and this is a true false question. Okay. True or false? According to the NWA official rules, okay. promoters may not be fugitives from justice. <laughs> may not be fugitives from justice. Um, I'm that. Uh, you know, I'm gonna say false. You're gonna say false. You're gonna, I'm gonna say, say false. I mean, why so, that? I can't see that being in the rule book. You know, I can't see that unless. You know what I mean? I'm just going to say it's not addressed in there. I'm going to go with false. Well, according to Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia, we we may need to get Tim Hornbaker on the case and see if he's got <laughs> some official <laughs> rules from the NWA. Because according to them, true. Promoters may not be fugitives from justice. Wrestlers, on the other hand, yeah. who gives yeah. a shit? In fact, it's encouraged. Yeah. Now, this yeah. may okay. answer why Cowboy Bob Ellis was never a wrestling promoter in the early uh, 80s. As we've talked about previously, he may have been on the lam for a few yeah, years. Maybe. Huh, okay, interesting. Huh. When we were going over the list of wrestlers in this territory, it's uh, pretty much mostly guys that we have seen here before. Danny Hodge, Jack Briscoe, the Assassins. But at the top of the cards, there were a couple of names that hadn't been here before. One in particular surprised me when I first research this period of time, and that is the brother of John Tolis, and it's Chris Tolis. Now, Chris was the older brother of John, and this was his only stint in Leroy's territory. John would come here over a decade later for a nice little run in 1977, and briefly again in 1979, leaving shortly before McGurk and Bill Watts split. So, John, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with older brother Chris than they are with John. Uh, tell us a little bit about Chris Tolis. Yeah, he's born, he's, he's, like I said, older, the older of the, the Tolis brothers, born in 29, both in the born in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. I think there are three siblings in total, a sister as well. Uh, yeah, growing up, guys are both natural athletes, hockey, football, track, amateur wrestling, even lacrosse. I'm surprised to learn about the, the Tolis brothers taking and lacrosse um and chris first broke in buffalo 51 i believe broke in with was trained by wee willie davis who also trained his brother um this would have been i think 51 probably prior to pedro martinez johnny powers probably old ed don george probably running things with bobby bruns i think and John starts a couple, like maybe maybe just a year or so after, and they start tagging regularly around '53. And it's really they they hold you know tag team gold basically wherever they went for the next 15 years. You could basically throw a throw a dart at a map of the U.S. and odds are they held the tag team title there from San Francisco to Texas, Western Canada, Buffalo, Indiana, Toronto. Crockett, huge stars in the WWWF, Florida, Detroit, Vancouver. Um, I think Buffalo, Vancouver, and Toronto are probably where they had their longest title runs. Um, and probably, I think roughly like three quarters to eighty percent of the time during the fifties and the mid sixties when they're working, they're working together in the same territory as a tag team, also in singles. Um, as the sixties sort of wear on, there are more and more occasions where you see them booked. In different territories, like spring of 65, I think they're both in Texas. 
Uh, Chris is working in Houston and Dallas, San Antonio. John is, is booked in Amarillo, uh, 66. John is in, in Portland and Vancouver. Uh, Chris spends the first half to three quarters of the year working for Vern, the latter part for McGurk. Uh, 67, they're both up in Vancouver and Portland. Um, and while John is having his first major run in L.A. in 68, Chris is back in Texas, and he's got a really nice main event push in, in East Texas there in, in the late 60s. Um, and Chris sort of keeps work on working throughout the 70s, but he, he settles settles down back in Hamilton, uh, Ontario. And this is when, when this is actually when John's career, who was more of a, I guess you call it a free spirit, we, we can call him. Um, this is where his singles career starts to take off with the blast feud. Um, you know, and, and John ends up holding basically their title, the America's title, like 10 or 12 times or something. Tag champs a half dozen times, brass knucks, beat the champ, whatever he could do out there. He did. So he had that really big singles run that, that Chris never really did. And from what I've read, like Chris was pretty much finished by the early the early 80s, just wrestling sort of sporadically in the, in the late late 70s, early 80s. And he stayed close to Hamilton to uh, to care for his sister. I think she had required special care, special needs of some sort. Hmm. And their mom, who actually lived to be like over 100 years old. So he oh, was wow. taking care of the, of the family. Um, another interesting fact I, I learned this month was uh, – we uh, talked about wrestling cookbooks last month. Yes. Uh, and someone we forgot to mention was Chris Tolan. Uh, so I have another wrestling cookbook to add to the want list. I've never seen this one uh, for sale or even displayed anywhere. I think I think it came out in 73 or 74. Uh, and I, I can't imagine he went through multiple printings of this, but I, I, so it's probably on the, on the rare do we know was it a particular type of cuisine or anything unique about no. it, or just a, a cookbook no. of uh, things he liked to make? Just a cookbook of things he liked to make, and it's like I, I guess at the time he came out with it, he was a. It was pretty. It's pretty funny because he was a heel, I guess, at the time. So he would be on TV promoting his cookbook as a heel, and the announcer would just be like, yeah. "I think that's a, a funny thing to imagine, like him promoting this as a heel on like LA TV right. or wherever it was." <laughs> we'll have to keep an eye out for that. And oh, while, while Chris was here, he had matches against all the top baby faces, including a series of matches against Danny Hodge and a series against Jerry Kozak. On our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we take a look at the Tolis Kozak feud, listing all known matches, stipulations, and, and other details were available. And again, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, Feuds in this era didn't always follow a set pattern that repeated itself in every market. Each town told its own story based on attendance. If the, the feud drew well, they would have an inconclusive finish to build to a rematch. So because of that, we see different stipulation matches in different towns. We see in this feud a few steel cage matches, a lumberjack match, a Texas rules match, which is generally the same as a Texas death match, and a couple of matches with a stipulation worth discussing. So Tolis's finishing move was called the corkscrew, and it basically involved twisting his knuckle into the temple of his prone opponent. I think it, the opponent would usually be seated in the ring, sort of legs out and, and, and butt down on the mat, and then he would just sort of uh, twist his knuckle into uh, the guy's temple. In Joplin, Missouri on November 5th, and Oklahoma City on December 2nd, their matches saw Kozak 
wear special headgear designed to take away the effectiveness of the corkscrew. So whether this means that the corkscrew was illegal or banned or controversial, I'm not sure, because usually when we see stipulations like that, it's to offset cheating. For example, uh, the great Bolo, Al Lovelock in this territory, uh, and Dr. X, Jim Osborne in later years, would always load the uh, foreign object and hide it under their mask. And so the babyface would get permission to wear a bo- boxing headgear so that the loaded headbutt would lose its effectiveness. Yeah. yeah. Speaking, you mentioned Al Lovelock, like, and that's one of my favorite uh, sort of stipulations that in- involve this sort of thing is, is one we talked about. Oh, geez, um, probably a year and a half ago at this point, back in the summer of. 65 or 64 this was uh i don't know why i just i'd love this one and it was during the uh mike gallagher al lovelock feud and gallagher was using illegal judo chops to the throat or something to to defeat lovelock so lovelock i guess eventually would be permitted to wear some sort of like a combination of leather metal foam neck protector device in order to 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 thwart Gallagher's illegal yeah. judo chops. They I called love it the a, idea. Yeah, they called it a karate co- collar, and I think they did the same thing with <laughs> oh, Tor Kamada wow. in this territory around this huh. time. Also, years later, when Paul Orndorff was feuding with Ken Mantell, yeah, uh, Mantell. Uh, had his head shaved, so put on the, uh, the 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 protective headgear so that fans couldn't see him being bald, but he would load it up with a foreign object. So yeah. Orndorff's counter was he would get permission to wear a football helmet because, of yeah. course, Orndorff <laughs> had played football. So not only is it a unique stipulation designed to offset a heel's advantage, but on some occasions it played into the babyface's, you know, persona, as, like with Orndorff where, having the football helmet. So in this one, I don't quite know whether what Tolis was doing was illegal and necessitated the headgear or there was some other reason explained, but it's a unique stipulation that we don't see all too often in the annals of wrestling history. Yeah. I thought this was cool too, the way this, this, you mentioned this in the blog, um, the way the feud began um, in, in the battle Royal. Yeah. This uh, was like the this Russian was... roulette battle Royal. Yeah, this was pretty commonplace. Uh, a lot of times it's it's used for what I like to call a booking reset when they don't have a natural main event for the following week because they blew something off the week before and they, they just didn't have anything ready. They'll just put together a battle royal and the last two participants will come back for a singles match for the battle royal purse and they'll have an inconclusive finish designed to build to a rematch. Uh, so it's it's a very simple way of establishing, you know, beef between two wrestlers is yeah. over money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. With, yeah. women or money, you know, <laughs> easy, easy way to uh, get two men to want to kill each other. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, no, I love this. I love- yeah. We mentioned Tor Kamada. Both he and another karate expert, Battleship Johnson, finished <laughs> yeah, up yeah. during the fall. And as we've mentioned previously, Battleship went to Amarillo, but seems to have only stayed for a week or two. He then shows up in some clippings for Ghoulis in early 1967, and that is pretty much it for his pro wrestling career. Uh, But as we learned a couple months ago when one of our listeners reached out to us, we learned a little bit more about his post-wrestling career and his uh, uh, karate studio 
in the uh, Dallas suburbs. Mm-hmm. Looking at the upper mid-carters in the territory, some other familiar names pop up on the heel side. We have Bob Orton Sr., we have Chuck Carbo, and we have Gorgeous George Jr., mm-hmm. also billed in some places as Gorgeous George II. Uh, so I was recently on Between the Sheets with uh, Chris Zellner and David Bixenspan, and we were talking about 1993, and this was when uh, the Double J vignettes first started airing on WWF TV. If you'll recall, Double J's character, uh, his whole storyline was that he wanted to become a country music superstar. But because the country music business was so corrupt and rife with nepotism and favoritism, he decided he was going to use professional wrestling as a way to springboard into a country music career. Wow. So, yes, because because country music business was so corrupt, he decided to go into pro wrestling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but long before there was double J, there was double G. Yeah. Gorgeous George Jr., who legitimately... Uh, tried to become a country music star after his wrestling career ended. Was he successful? You be the judge. When babies are born, it's a boy or a girl. Babies need milk all over the world. Come running when they hear babies call. Babies hungry for milk. That's a booby highball. Celebrate. That's a booby highball. Yep. Yes, it is. Is uh, the name of a song by Gorgeous George <laughs> Jr. Yeah, yeah. I can confirm that this is a thing that actually happened. Um, so, yeah. So when you first showed me this and you, you, you actually found a picture of the 45 record uh, and it just said, that's a booby high ball. And we, of course, speculated what sort of dirty nonsense it is. And it's not quite as dirty as we thought. It's referring to a baby uh, drinking milk from his mother as a yeah. booby high ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, he also had an album, and oh, yeah. you had the cover for that. We'll put these, uh, all the stuff we're talking about, we'll put out on Twitter, so be sure to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. But his album, he uh, sings the songs of the country legends and a few old friends. The, the, after reading the liner notes on the back of this record, it seems like the guy who is his manager slash producer charlie taylor it seems like perhaps this record was a promotional tool to for his lubbock texas country music hall of fame uh because if you go through the track listing of all the gave as a guy like ernest tubb song a jim reeves song a bob willis song a gene autry song a jimmy rogers song so on so forth george jones merle Haggard, charlie pride mel tillis johnny cash um, he goes through basically every every one of these artists on the back of the record, and he's like, "This, this is the first, you know, uh, artist admitted to the Lubbock 
Hall of uh, Country, Country Music Hall of Fame. So it goes through all of the artists. So I have a feeling it's a sort of some sort of promotional tool to uh, get people to come to the Hall of Fame or something. There's something something going on here that I can't quite figure out. The I can't quite figure out his angle. When you see his photo, you you could tell that this guy is a guy who probably has an angle. He looks like. So per, like that perhaps the country music business is more corrupt than the professional wrestling business. And Double J <laughs> had it right all along. We'll never know. Uh, but Gorgeous George Jr. had a very clever change in gimmick born out of circumstances. So um, earlier in 1966, he was wrestling in Arizona. And on his way out, he lost a hair match. So he lost his hair. His next stop was in Heart of America, Central States, for about a month, and he billed himself as the Fighting Marine Dick Marshall. Huh. So, I, I mean, pretty clever. You know, you lose your hair, but you still got to work, so you you bill yourself as a Marine. So, yeah. if, if you don't mind the stolen valor, it's a pretty clever way of covering, <laughs> you know, for why he was bald. Yeah, there were, I think, a couple other uh, exceptions, uh, a couple other places where he was not able to use the gorgeous George name, I think, was it uh California, I think, was that where he was sued by the widow of Gorgeous George? I think he I've heard that. that. I also think in Portland. Born. Yes, Vancouver, Vancouver. Vancouver, okay. I think because Rod, uh, Rod Fenton was friends with the, the OG, the OGG. The OGG. <laughs> the OGG. And I think Fenton billed him as Gaylord George. Gaylord George. Yeah, yeah. so obviously... Gorgeous George Jr. was of no actual relation to George Wagner, but later in life, he did legally change his name to George Wagner. I th- in fact, it may have happened around the time yeah. he was in Oklahoma. I've, I've read that. But his birth name was Charles Richard Phelps. And John, as we always like to do on this podcast, we we try and find out information about these wrestlers in their pre-wrestling or post-wrestling career. And sometimes we find some really fascinating things but most of the time we find police records. <laughs> yes, like we did for Thunderbolt Patterson a while back. And like we did recently for uh, young Buck Robley and his uh, involvement in a gang fight and then attempted uh, jailbreak. Yeah. So yeah. when you were doing some research on Charles Richard Phelps, you found the same type of thing. So what we'll start, we'll, we'll start by saying this. The name Charles Richard Phelps is a match. The age is a match, and the incidents we're about to recount happened in the metropolitan Minneapolis area, with Phelps's address listed in Hopkins, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. Now, Phelps was reportedly born in Olivia, Minnesota, which is a good hour and a half outside of the city, but his father worked for the Milwaukee Railroad, and it's been said the family moved around a lot, so it's very feasible, uh, and Pretty likely that this is our man, but we'll just caveat it with this. It's always possible there was a second Charles Richard Phelps of the same age who lived in the same state that these incidents uh, occurred to. So now that we've got that out of the way, John, what did you find in the uh, Minneapolis uh, newspapers? The first thing I found was him uh, at age 20, uh, placed on three years probation, uh, third degree burglary, breaking into a uh, furniture and appliance store, uh, stealing phonograph, radio, and hi-fi equipment. 
He didn't steal uh, any laser disc equipment? Because if, if he did, we can play this fucking Lord of the Rings thing you got me. <laughs> um, then uh, more trouble uh, less than a year later. Uh, this one is kind of crazy. Uh, the the uh, it's uh, speeding. Read right? the headline. Read the headline because I like it. Oh, the headline: Speeder chased, traced. Speeder chased, comma, comma traced. traced. Yeah, so it's like there was a guy who was uh, speeding, you know, exceeding eighty miles an hour, um, and you know, they they had to chase him for a while until you know uh, uh, Phelps. Uh, abandoned his car, uh, drove into an alley, abandoned the car, and disappeared on foot. Um, police get to the car, find you know whatever car stuff, tool and whatever, an empty 32 caliber automatic weapon. Ooh. Uh, and you know they 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 find that the the uh, he was employed. By a uh, what was it? What do you have? Like a water conditioning water firm. Water conditioning right? firm. So they, they sure contact the manager, and yeah. he says, "Yeah, that was uh, that was Charles Richard Phelps." And he basically, <laughs> they get well, they get him to to you know roll over on him. They yeah, yeah. basically had uh, one of the officers hide on the floor of the manager's car while he drove to Charles Richard Phelps's house. Yeah, and then they arrested him. <laughs> Uh, and he uh, he then, was sentenced to uh, a whopping sixty three days yes. in the clink for this. No, in the well, workhouse. Oh, oh yeah, yo, oh, you're right. Not in the clink. In the workhouse. That sounds so scary to a uh, a, a, a a Jewish suburban kid like me. Thirty days in the workhouse <laughs> sounds really really bad. And then the last thing I found. This one is a little crazier. Uh, December 13th, 1960, um, headline, second man, second man jailed for attack. Uh, uh, Charles R. Phelps, 23 years old, age matches, of course, uh, second member of a gang to receive 90 days again in the workhouse, uh, for an attack on a group of University of Minnesota fraternity members conducting an initiation. Uh, one of the guys had like a, a fractured spine, bruises. Um, read the next read the next paragraph because this one cracks me up. <laughs> a report on the incident said the attacking gang kicked their victim so hard one of them broke his shoe. <laughs> <laughs> that is like that, that sounds like a jerky boys skit. And I'll I'll bring all my shoes and my glasses so I have them. I'll break my shoe. Oh, it's, a, it's it's a terrible tumble in this attack. Uh, so. Yeah, so he, what does he get for this? Oh, the judge really had it in for him, too. The judge called this the most abhorrent and disgusting uh, attack he had ever heard on the bench. And it also mentioned that Phelps is on uh, on probation for yeah. burglary. He got, ni- he got uh, 90 days in the workhouse <laughs> this time around. <laughs> so, you know, there's like, who knows? Uh, you know, this is our guy. That's, it's, you know, I it's, mean... It's, I I think it's more likely than not that it's what's him. interesting too is there's a there's a, when when looking into his life George George Richard Wagner Jr. and Charles Richard Phelps uh you know it is it is interesting you know because like 
Charles Richard Phelps is basically gone from the public record after the mid 60s. Like looking, if you look up relatives and descendants, like the last name is Wagner, not Phelps. That's super interesting. But anyway, back to the original thing. If, you know, I had a couple thoughts on this. If this Charles Phelps is our, our Charles Phelps, then, then, then maybe the legal name change served other purposes as opposed, you know, in addition to exactly the, rest, the wrestling gimmick. And there's a, lot, a few interviews, and there's one, a long one with, with, with this Scott Teal, where he talks about wrestling. And how early in his career, you know, he may have worked like a little stiff with guys. And he says, I would find my mind going back to fighting out in the streets, which sort of imply, I guess more, there's more than imply um, that there was maybe some, some, some violence in his past. So that, yeah. that for me, that sort of like tips the, tips the scale closer to like, oh, this might be him. Uh, yeah, as, so. as as I've said in the past, you know, the reason wrestling attracted a certain element uh, is the appeal of being able to, you know, travel around under a fake name uh, is probably very appealing to, you know, an, an undesirable element. Uh, they can pretty much operate under, you know, undercover and, you know, without with less scrutiny than if yeah. they were, you know, using their real name every step of the way. So this is sort of why wrestling has attracted uh, some not so good people over the years. It's, it's you know, it's, I, it, I mean, it's just a fact. I'm not, you know, yep. but now we do have some footage of Gordis George Jr. that John found on YouTube. And uh, recall, we now have a, a YouTube channel where we compile these and put these up as playlists. So be sure to uh, look for and subscribe to charting the territories on YouTube. First up, there's very brief clip footage uh, with no audio of him taking on El Cicadelico in yeah. 1974. Yeah, it's a clip, a quick, a quick clip. Like I said, like less, less, less than a minute, I think, is like eight millimeter footage. But you get to see what do we we do get to see like a bit of him entering the ring with the robe and doing all his his preening, and you can see that he's really got like the or I thought he 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 really had the mannerisms down. Yeah. really well and with a gimmick like this like the in-ring work is, is is probably secondary to being able to work that part of the gimmick which he seems like he does really well here and it's cool to see uh el cicadelico here too it, it's it's speaking of him really quickly if we can like he's the oldest of the three brothers right i of, uh, think so yeah, but like seeing him yeah, yeah like seeing him in la or houston in the early 70s to me like makes sense like that's not like i'm not jarred by seeing or, or thinking about that but it's wild to think about like someone like him working in gulf coast in 73 you know yep. like like him like him working john tolos or bull ramos at the olympic in 1971 yes okay that makes total sense but you, you you see you read about him like wrestling like tarzan baxter or the wrestling pro in, in hattiesburg mississippi in 1973 yeah and he went to he was in georgia so cool. i think he was forget if he was with gunkel or uh with gcw but it was uh after the split um he worked there for a little while around the time he worked in gulf coast yeah it's it's very weird seeing uh, some of these wrestlers in some places. But uh, one place where the Gorgeous George Jr. gimmick was a natural fit would have been Memphis. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have footage from uh, Memphis TV in early 1977. I believe this is just before um, Goulas and Jarrett split um, because they referred to a match that happened on February 20th at the Mid-South Coliseum. And it wasn't until... 
two or three weeks later that Jarrett split from Goulas. But George and Porkchop Cash had been teaming up his heels, and they were part of Jerry Lawler's army. This was one of Lawler's uh, times as a heel. But the two had a falling out during that February 20th match at Memphis. And this was the TV that aired in Memphis uh, the Saturday after that match. And I think it's pretty well known among our listeners, but Lawler insinuates that Gorgeous George's quote-unquote father was a drunk and died a penniless bum. Oh, and yeah. of course, George comes out and a big brawl ensues. And it's, it's, it sure looks, John, like uh, George was literally trying to smother Pork chop cash and, oh, geez, and dude, murder yeah. death kill him. <laughs> yeah, that's like like like. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not just not, you know punching, punching, kicking. It is he is on top of him, and I believe he is. I, I don't know if it's the windpipe or just over his like mouth and nose, but he's pretty much trying to smother him like and choking. kill him. He's just like yeah. choking him. Yeah, it's like he just. I was like, I went on like for an uncomfortably long amount of time, and I was like, where's where's Lawler going to come and get him off him? What's yeah. happening? Is I'm going to do something? Um, but it but it leads to a very emotional interview, and and this would basically this was solidifying George's turn, and he's now a babyface. But it's a very vulnerable promo from him. He he pretty much you know talks about you know again he's. You know, he's pretending that the real gorgeous George was his father, but he's talking about, but you know what? We had food on the table every night. You know, he loved me and this and that. And it really struck me because uh, in recent times, we've seen a few of the top baby faces in all elite wrestling talk about their personal real life struggles and sort of bring it into their characters. Uh, this is Eddie Kingston has, has been pretty vocal about yep. his battles with mental health. Um, Adam Page, even more recently, has, has done that as well. And of course, John Moxley, they have they haven't quite said on air that he went to rehab for alcohol addiction, but they came as close to fully acknowledging that on the TV as possible without acknowledging it. But again, you have three top babyface stars in a big wrestling promotion admitting vulnerability. And there's a lot of people, I see a lot of people on, on social media bashing this, saying, no, pro wrestlers are supposed, be, are supposed to be tough guys. This is nonsense, blah, 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 blah. That's not true at all. And, and with this promo, we have evidence that while it didn't happen a lot, it did happen. And, and babyfaces absolutely often showed the human side of them and showed vulnerabilities as a key to get the fans to rally behind them. Yeah. And this is a good promo too. Like I wasn't, I was really surprised about when I heard this promo, it it was not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, I, he reminds, it was way more the way it's almost like a, like a, like an eighties, buddy roberts promo uh much more of like a good old boy sounding guy than i expected gorgeous george jr to sound i thought i I expected him to to sound more like haughty i guess for lack of a better term but he was very just like and that might have been done on purpose to again make the fans for lack of a better term think oh it's real because he's not you know he's 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 letting his real accent come through for example as opposed to nowadays where they say and this is a shoot brother (laughs) <laughs> back then they would do little things to you know make you think you know to to make you think oh this this isn't part of the script yeah uh, and, no, i love and, it like you talk about like his, his, you know his dad refused to wrestle on sundays because right. he, he would he they would they would take he would take the family to church you know he would say dad i, I got a baseball game all the all the 
you know, everybody else's dad is going to be there, you know. So, so he would make a point. He'd tell the promoter he couldn't wrestle. He'd come to see him again. He saw people outside who couldn't afford to get in. He would give them money to come get in. You know, he's like everything he could possibly do to, you know, it's great. Yeah. Really good promo, I thought. But it, it's just a really, you know, it, it can be implemented, particularly in the case when someone's turning. It's a really good way to humanize them and get sympathy for them is to yeah. have them sort of yeah. take yeah. – uh, uh, metaphorically take their mask off for a brief moment yep. and, and that's what he did here so we'll post it's a two-part uh video clip we'll put that as well as the uh minute-long footage of him versus el Cicadelico on our youtube page uh but as we run down the list of full-timers in the territory one name that doesn't show up but who was here for just two nights was lou thez lou was in tulsa on december 12th and the next night in Little Rock. In both nights, he teamed up with uh, a young a youngster just out of his rookie year named Jack Briscoe to face the Assassins. Mm. And they won wow. both nights, uh, though in Little Rock it was by disqualification. But yeah, in 1966, you have Luthez teaming with Jack Briscoe. And I wonder if this was just one of those... You know, Lou, we've got this youngster. We really think we've got something here. He, you know, he was a champion in college and he's done really well so far in pros. Would you like to, you know, work with him, team with him and, you know, get a feel for him and tell us what you think or help him out? Something like that. I could, you know, so many times in, in wrestling in this era, you have the tag teams consisting of uh, the veteran and the rookie. And this was really done to help the rookie develop as a wrestler by having yeah. them. Uh, in the ring and likely on the road with the with you know the mentor. So I, I'm wondering if that's a similar situation here. Yeah, this is super cool. I mean, like you said, like I think this is not not quite rookie year, but you know, right after and yeah, um, it's fifteen fifteen it's, sixteen months in. Yeah, and it's like and again, and this is also like what like not even a year after Fez's last Tyler reign. It's, and it's fascinating to think back that back then it would be just it would just, it would take just three men, just over six and a half years separating Thez's last reign from the beginning of, of Briscoe's reign. Like it was a Kaniski funk and race. Um, just so interesting to think about. Br- Briscoe in his book too, talks a lot about how much of a mentor and inspiration Thez was to him along with, of course, like the Oklahoma guys like Danny Hodge and, and Dick Hutton naturally, um, you know, and Jack, calls Lou like the best and the best he's ever seen in the ring and one of his idols and all that. Um, with the, oh, the quote I remember is like, there weren't many wrestlers like Lou says there weren't even many men like Lou says, period. <laughs> what Briscoe says about Seth says. So it's, it's, uh, it's just those two at that, at those different at that stages stage of, their, of both yeah. men's you know, yeah, careers so is just wild to see. And, you know, that's the great thing about charting the territories is because you see all yeah. these um, encounters uh, of people that you didn't know were, you know, crossing paths at that time or in that place. Um, you know, further down the card, we see a few names that we've talked about before on this podcast and some we haven't. Uh, the mid carters in the territory included Nikita Malkovich, who a few years earlier, as Sasha the Great was Danny Hodge's opponent in Hodge's first pro match, and who years later would become an accomplished championship belt designer. Those are the Mulko belts. 
Another name is Roberto Pico, and I wasn't too familiar with him at first, but he had a pretty big run here in the late 50s. He feuded with Cowboy Bob Clay. He had matches against Angelo Savoldi and Red Bastine, and he even got a world title shot against someone you just mentioned, Dick Hutton, in Oklahoma City. We also see Pancho Rosario, who would later work here as Gypsy Joe Rosario, and of course is perhaps most infamous for being one of uh, Pfeffer's knockoffs. He was Bruno San Martino. Yeah. And one of the Eddie Sullivans. Uh, We've talked about (laughs) a couple of Eddie Sullivans previously on the podcast, but this was Edward Montemayor, a.k.a. Tito Montez, and not the one from Gulf Coast in the early 70s, real name Ruben Huizar. And another wrestler who shows up in the mid-cards is... uh, Johnny Zenda. I think he's billed as the Canadian champion. Oh, interesting. Wow. And when I was doing um, research on Johnny, I, you know, we, I always like to learn about wrestlers I, I'm not familiar with, but I, I stumbled across his profile on IMDB, which is the Internet Movie Database. Uh, his real name is John Lewis Zendejas. And there's a brief biography on IMDB that was submitted by his son. So, you know, first off, alarm bells go off. If if his son submitted this bio, perhaps there's some embellishments going on. Maybe there isn't. But if everything listed in this bio is true, then the fact that Zenda was a professional wrestler may be the least interesting thing about his life. (laughs) So here's the highlights. Here's here's the (laughs) highlights of Johnny Zenda, a.k.a. John Lewis Zendejas. Killed on screen by Michael Myers... Worked as Sean Penn's personal bodyguard, was inducted into the National Hot Rod Association Hall of Fame, and is a descendant of the notorious outlaw Jesse James. So let's take these point by point. Uh, He most definitely was killed on screen by Michael Myers, and that was in Halloween 2. Uh, it's a scene in the hospital where uh, Donald Pleasance, you know, Loomis shoots Myers and Myers goes down and Johnny Zenda playing, you know, the local cop walks right up to Michael Myers and Dr. Loomis is like, no, 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 he's not really dead. And Jamie. the cop is like, well, he's not breathing. And next thing you know, yeah. he's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fun little. It's a fun little clip. Uh, have you seen the latest Halloween movie, Halloween Ends? I haven't seen it yet. I have um, not on... seen it yet either. It's on the cock. Yeah. It, oh, it's on the cock. Okay, cool. It's cool, in the cool, theaters, cool. but it's also on the cock. I want to watch that. And I also want to watch the. Did uh, I get a Halloween movie diversion here for a second? The the, the monsters one. I want to see that too. Because that that that's I, a... the one on Netflix. I could I could get into it, but I know a lot of people that liked it very much. So it's it's just a matter of your your own personal taste. But I tend to like most of the stuff that Rob Zombie does uh, in in the film world. Speaking of the film world, as for being Sean Penn's bodyguard. This is probably true, or at least true-ish. Zenda was in Bad Boys, which was the 1983 movie that was a breakthrough role for Sean Penn. And he had a role in the 1990 movie Colors that starred Penn. Oh, good movie. Yeah, and and he has a small role, but it's, you know, 
it seems like we can put all these things together and say they befriended one another on the set of Bad Boys and remained close and thus Penn was able to get him a small role in that movie years later. Um, another reason why this him being the bodyguard may be true, Zenda briefly worked as a police officer in the early 1960s. So, again... Something there was some form of a relationship. There was definitely a friendship between Penn and Zenda, and whether Zenda was officially on the payroll as Penn's bodyguard or it was a more informal arrangement, I don't know. But there is definitely some truth to this, if not completely true. Yep, so far so good. Yeah, as far as Zenda being in the NHRA, the National Hot Rod Association Hall of Fame, I looked as hard as I could, and there are a few different governing bodies for hot rod racing. Some of them have changed their names over the years, and some of them have more than one Hall of Fame, as it were. Yeah. So I couldn't find anything definitively putting, you know, attaching Zendejas or Zenda to a Hall of Fame, but there is definite evidence of him having a significant career in the hot rod industry in various roles, from a driver to a track manager to the curator of a hot rod museum to the director of the historical services division of the NHRA. I wonder if he invented some statistics and maybe we had charting <laughs> charting the hot rods as uh, part of the NHRA's historical services. Yeah. But Zenda seems to have been a pretty big deal in the world of hot rod racing. It appears, John, that he pioneered the use of a sticky substance named VHT that served two purposes. First, it increased the traction of a car's tires, and it also served as a sealant for new or resurfaced tracks. And I think at some point, some of the, some of the racing governing bodies banned VHT. <laughs> um, yeah, I think but, NASCAR stopped. Yeah. But, but drag reasons, but, but drag racing didn't. So, John, you found a couple of articles mentioning both VHT and Zenda. So talk about yeah. those. First, first article I found was from draglist.com, uh, which is sort of like the, the kayfabe memories of drag racing, I guess, if you want to bring it, make a wrestling analogy to the website, written by a guy named Steve Gibbs. And he talks about uh, applying VHT to... A racetrack in Pomona in the early 70s using using a like a helicopter agricultural sprayer type rig. Um, he talks about how like when when those liquid traction compounds first showed up, there were two basic ways they would use them. One would be like just to the guys sort of uh, like a paint, so to speak, their tires with the stuff. Uh, and the other was to do what they would call puddling. Uh, uh, on the surface of the track, and they just do a burnout through it, which was very, 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 very messy. Um, and, uh, and John Zenda was working at the Sacramento Raceway and began spraying you know, VHT on large portions of the track, and that he was the first guy to do this, and it was very, very impressive results. So they had him uh, come in to Pomona to oversee the. Uh, <laughs> This radical new method of track preparation. Um, so then they eventually contacted a a local crop duster and talked him into spraying the VHT all over the track. And it was like, of course, cut the application time down to like a you know a tenth of the time it normally takes. 
but like what a mess from like the air turbulence <laughs> and like the helicopter blades, you know? So there's VHT everywhere, like on both sides of the guardrails and even like the front roads of the bleachers and the chopper owner guy was so pissed because he's probably, you know, if he's still alive, probably still cleaning his helicopter. <laughs> yeah. The under, the under, <laughs> the undercarriage of the, of the helicopter. Probably. And, the, and, and the second article is from the actual NHRA.com website. It gives you and it should you know let you know that this is actually that he was actually a big deal with that yeah and, and that his his use of VHT may have led to the most exciting uh, race in history that was 1975 <laughs> right the world yeah. the world finals in Ontario I Ontario. assume that's Ontario California and not yeah, yeah. Ontario Canada but yeah, yes they, the uh, most exciting. Uh, uh, race, uh, perhaps up to that point, if not since that point in, uh, the history of the NHRA, uh, yeah. may have been a direct result. It, it, there's a, a photo here. It says at least partial credit for 1975's performance parade goes to John Zendejas, shown performing his magic earlier in the year in Pomona, who meticulously coded the length of the Ontario strip with traction compound. Like they actually, you know, it wasn't like he was just like a guy on staff. They, you know, they actually enlisted and brought him in specifically to, to do, do to work his magic that he had done magic. on his nope. track to do it for I, the nationals. I don't know what the what's the technological equivalent to this in other sports. You know, like a breakaway basketball rim. I don't even know what you would like. What would you know? Because it's like seems like it's, a, it's a, the ap- the apron it's being a, the hardest part of the ring. <laughs> <laughs> whoever whoever decided to do that when they constructed these rings, maybe. Or, uh, uh, you know, the, the latest development I've seen, I, I went to a, a jiu-jitsu competition. They had a tag team thing. No. So, you know, uh, the, that's progress. So, yeah. So he he is probably in some Hall of Fame related to drag racing. I just couldn't independently find it on my own. But regardless, he absolutely was... Uh, a revolutionary and and served the industry in various capacities for a large part of his post wrestling life. So we're pretty much three for three, but now comes the big one: Was Johnny Zenda a descendant of the outlaw Jesse James? And John, this is where you dug into Ancestry dot com. So if you can, uh, you actually found several pieces uh, of information dating you know back. Uh, in time, so let's let's start from the beginning and just sort of piece by piece, just briefly uh, explain what you find and and how that ties into whether or not we can prove that Zenda uh, was related to Jesse James. Yeah, the first, luckily, um, with all the all the census stuff that's available now, this makes this a lot uh, less laborious than it would have been. Right. Uh, 20 years ago and like you know if you start with the i started with the 1950 um u.s census we could see you know his, his stepdad luis is on there uh and his mom seda s-a-b-a uh we find her she's 29 years old born in oregon around 1921 and we believe and, and we we've the the mom side of the family is the one that's uh supposedly related to jesse james correct Allegedly, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, so that's, so that's, that's, okay, so let's stick with the mom. She's born in Oregon yep. around 1921, and her name is Seda. Yep. Okay. Yep. So was working backwards on her, uh, I was able to find a marriage certificate 
for her first marriage. Um, and there we can see that her maiden name was Schroll, S-C-H-R-O-L-L. Um, and according to one of the Jesse James uh, genealogy resources, Schroll is a surname that is part of the, the James family tree. Ooh, all right. Yep. We're, we're, we're um, getting somewhere. Yeah. And we could also see that her father, based on his paperwork, was born in Missouri, where Jesse James was born. And I think I think also died. Okay. Um, so, all right. So we, we may be onto something. We might be uh, able to verify this, which would be really, really cool. Yep. And then I find divorce papers, baby. Uh-oh. Uh, Theta and Chuck getting divorced September 11th, 1945. Uh Johnny's just over a year old. Nothing, you know, yeah, revelatory nothing here. Us, nothing helps us there. But when we go back a little bit further mm-hmm. to 1930, 1930. Uh, what, do, what do we find there? We find her mother, Seda's mother, Anne M. Schroll, Johnny's grandmother, and the alleged descendant of Jesse James. Uh, 52 years old. That would have put her birth year at around 1878 or so. Uh, also lists Anne and Anne's mother's birth date as Missouri, also the home state okay. of Jesse James. All right. So we have a surname, Schroll, that is linked to Jesse James. And we have a couple of uh, appearances of the state of Missouri, which is yes. also the uh, home base and origins yep. of noted outlaw, train <laughs> robber, and all-around hooligan, Ooh, Jesse man. James. So how far back does this thing go? It goes back because next the next hint comes from the 19... Uh, no, the 18... 1880. 1880 U.S. Census. So what did you find there? So we have Anne, uh, age two, listed here as Annie and her family. Uh, her mother's married name as... Sarah Charles, uh, 27 years old, making her birth year around 1853. I also found some other documents where it's 1851, but back then you sort of have to have a little more wiggle room with the stuff than you, you would now. Uh, Annie's grandfather's birth date is listed as Missouri and her grandmother's as Kentucky. Okay, so we're, we're still... We, it looks like we're we're getting there. We're still yep. tracing back to Missouri. Back to Missouri. So going even further back, this is as far back far, as far back as I could find actual uh, documentation. Um, and this is Susan Ann Baker James, who would be Johnny's great great grandmother. Uh, Born in 1829 in Columbia, Missouri, uh, and dying on August 24th, 1961. Uh, that, that can't be right, John. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, you're wrong. Uh, yes, yes, no, <laughs> she did not sorry. live to be 132 years no, old. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's 1861. That's uh, 1861. Okay. So, 18, oh, she died young. She died very, at 32. Yeah, but, very young. But, very young. All right. So here we found the surname James. We traced yeah. it back. And we found the surname James. So now, in theory, all we have to do is link this James to Jesse James. So, John, finish it up for us. So I can, I can trace this particular James family all the way back to William James, uh, Johnny's seventh great-grandfather to his birth 
1705 in Hampshire, Massachusetts. Um, these, sadly, these are not the same Jameses that I could find that begat either Jesse or, or Frank. That James line did not arrive in the U.S. from Wales until the late 1700s and settled in, in, in Virginia. Um, so I, I can't find any familial connection between anyone on either side of their family trees going back to 1705. But with that said, with that, well, all that said, it's so tough with the James family, and there's a couple of reasons. Um, there were a couple of books that came out in the late in the in the, in the 80s about the, the James family's genealogy, uh, and they show the family small, isolated, little or no extended family. Both show very few ancestral lines, not many fully developed descendant lines, very few in-laws. They sort of portray the, that James family as like a very compact social unit with little outside contact, which was not very accurate. And the unintended result of that, it leaves, it leaves it very open for others to claim themselves as a descendant. Um, also, a lot of the original descendants, like immediately following the, Jesse's death, would either withdraw or distance themselves from the family out of embarrassment, right. sure. change their name, disavow their ancestry, which further muddies the water. So initially you had people wanting to like disavow their connection to the James family. And then several generations later, when he started becoming viewed as more of, you know, more, less of a criminal outlaw and more of like a folk hero, like a legendary figure, it became more, you know, I don't want to say cool, but like it, it did but to be able to claim that sort of heritage. Right. It, was very, it became like very the people who, who claim they saw the uh, Eddie Gilbert versus Cactus Jack three matches in one night at, at <laughs> yeah. uh, the predecessor at ECW, where uh, the show bombed attendance wise. Yet, if you talk to people now, apparently everybody that followed wrestling in 1991 <laughs> was there. So we did not find 100% proof direct link, but. Yeah. Given some of the names that popped up, it's at least possible that that there is some relation between the two. It's also possible that whoever uh, in the Zendaya's family, maybe one of them was doing some genealogy, came upon that Schroll name and traced it back to a James name and then just sort of assumed that there was a link, which is a reasonable assumption. So... We can't prove that it's true, but at the same time, we can't prove that it's yeah. not true. Exactly. So Johnny Zenda murdered by what he should have done was he should have gotten his ancestors, you know, to avenge him and kill Michael Myers. That would make a great movie. <laughs> yeah. If uh, like maybe like the like the family of the actor John Zendayas goes after the actor uh, who played Michael Myers by getting their, you know, dead relative to come back from the dead to kill oh, wow. the actor that played Michael Myers. That I'd watch. Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool idea. I like that. You gotta write that down. Should edit no, it out of the no. podcast. Yeah, exactly. Or someone else will steal it. Uh, hey, if we have <laughs> if we have any anybody with ties to showbiz listening to this podcast out in Hollywood. Uh, our, our phones are open. Yeah. So yeah. give us a call. We'll make thousands together. <laughs> you can learn more about the fourth quarter of 1966, including gorgeous George Jr., 
Johnny Zenda, a couple of assassins, a couple of medics, Danny Hodge, Jack Briscoe, Lou Thez, and so many others on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, and it includes the advertised lineups for 136 house shows in the territory during the quarter. In the book that covers 1971 through 1973, the first Charting the Territories book, we have 2,499 house shows, as we said earlier. I could have had 2,500 even, but I just had enough questions about one of them that I didn't want to include it. But that's an average of 16 per week. And by my estimates, and that's the great thing about the stats that we use, is we can look at how often these wrestlers are booked week by week and use that to estimate what we're missing. So I would say that that number is only about 85% or so complete, which means there's a few hundred house shows still undocumented. So this almanac is just step one in my attempts to document as many of them as possible. Of course, the book, which is called The 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Wrestling Almanac, is available everywhere via Amazon. And you can just go to Amazon and search for Charting the Territories, and it should pop up. And if you live in the continental U.S., you can order it directly through us at chartingtheterritories.com and get a couple of bonuses, including an autograph, a color photo, and a discount on a future book order. So it's the first in a series. How many and what years and territories they'll cover is honestly something I don't know at this point. I want to do as much as possible, but I also know there's no way I can do all territories for all times. So it's a matter of trying to figure out if I want to stick to a specific time period or a specific geographic area. Um, so it also depends on how quickly I can I can put them out. Because I, I will say, like I said earlier, <laughs> I've been working on this for the better part of a year Granted, a lot of that time was just a little futzing around here and there. But, you know, when I when I really put my foot down and go for it, once I see how long it takes me now to get the next one ready to go, will give me a better idea of how many of these books I can churn out. But the next book, I am targeting for a release in early 2023, maybe around oh, wow. the beginning of the spring. And it's also going to cover Leroy's territory, and this time it will cover 1974 through 1976, which makes sense because the first book covers 71 through 73, and now we'll go to 74 through 76. And of course, on this podcast for the last year, we have been talking about 1974. uh, We're basically rotating between 74, 78, and 66. And as we've talked about 74, it's definitely a down year talent-wise. But I assure you, things will pick up come 1975 when Bill Watts and Danny Hodge return, and it will be fun to chart the territory over those years. In fact, speaking of 1974, next month on this very podcast, we will look at the fourth quarter of that year. Two rookies who recently turned heel decide to team up, and it's a match made in heaven for hardcore wrestling fans But their opponents likely viewed it as a match made in hell. Plus, (laughs) Buck Robley's push continues. Johnny Eagles is fired up and coming for Skandor Akbar and much more. Those are just some of the things you can learn about next month on the Charting the Territories podcast. As far as this month, we hope you learned lots of things as well. You learned about 
Johnny Zenda being a victim of Michael Myers, learned about Gorgeous George Jr.'s Oedipus complex, shall we say. (laughs) And perhaps a few other things, because John and I learn many things each and every month. And on this podcast, we each mention one thing. So it's uh, a segment we call This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, you know, usually, usually if we or I make a, a, a planned mention of someone on the show, even in passing, I like to do a little digging to find if I can find anything remotely interesting to, to bring up about them just for the just for kicks, just to have, have a little discussion if we have a little time to fill or whatever, you know. Uh, in this episode, I briefly mentioned Wee Willie Davis as having been the uh, guy who's credited with uh, breaking in. Uh, Chris and John told us. And I admit, I don't know that much about we Willie Davis. Um, but this month I learned that we Willie Davis, along with fellow wrestler, I'm going to absolutely butcher this pronunciation here. I even, I even butchered the pronunciation of pronunciation just there. Uh, we Willie Davis, along with fellow wrestler, Agus Lockie, Mikalkis. Oh, sure. Uh, I just like Mikalkis. Everybody oh, yeah. knows I just like Mikalkis. <laughs> I think he lives in my building, actually. <laughs> I, I, live in, I live in the story. Uh, he wrestled at the mad, as the Mad Greek and also Prince Ilaki Ibn Ali Hassan invented a device called a glow meter. What's a glow meter, you ask? Um, glow meter is what they call, I guess they still call it this, uh, a heads-up display device that would project the speed of a car onto the windshield for the driver to view. Whoa. Sort of like that technology that they still use in, uh, you know, like military uh, aviation. Um, and they did this all the way back in 1950. Um, Davis apparently had uh, degrees in horticulture and a master's in mechanical engineering. and did a bunch of other super interesting stuff during and after his wrestling career, actually. Um, Should have hooked him up with Johnny Zenda. They could have, uh, you know, (laughs) incorporated that into the uh, hot rods. Yeah. John and John Cosper actually has a great article about him over on his uh, eat sleep wrestle website, which, which I'll link to uh, when we post about the show. Um, And there's actually documentation of this device in a July 1950 issue of mechanics with an X. Mechanics Illustrated, which I had, which I found and purchased. In your, uh, and you didn't have it in your archives. You have everything did, else in your archives. I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I found and I purchased it, but I have not received it yet. The guy is sending it like the the the, the, the media mail for so. It's, but when I do, I will scan the the relevant article if it actually is in the uh, in that issue, and we, I will post it for our listeners to. So there you go. The heads up display. I know a lot of cars have that. That's a a pretty recent feature on on a lot of the cars uh, that are coming out now is to have that. Well, that's pretty cool. So what I learned, um, one of the challenges when it comes to doing my research is figuring out what towns that haven't been researched are good candidates. Um, if there wasn't wrestling in a town, it's a huge waste of time to look through, especially if they're not online where you can't search them. If you have to go to a library and look through a microfilm to look through years and years of microfilm and not find anything. Oh, it's so frustrating. 
even if they only ran the town once or twice a year, it, it's just not worth it. So one of the things I do is I, I've looked at historical population data and not just population, but also what I don't know if it's demographics or not, but there's a concept. Um, there's a term called metropolitan statistical areas, which is basically a big city plus all of its suburbs and, and associated regions. Uh, so it's a matter of taking towns with high populations in the 60s and 70s that aren't part of a larger metropolitan statistical area. For example, a lot of these suburbs in California, in both Southern California and Northern California, or in the Northeast, are large enough to be, you know, larger than most cities in their own right. But since they're suburbs of a major metropolitan area, they're less likely to have weekly shows. So I do a lot of work in doing that and identifying towns that I might need to research. But sometimes uh, the loop of a wrestling territory just falls into my lap. And recently, my intern, Sam Waldo, we've mentioned him on the podcast in the past. He's uh, been helping me out tons with getting newspaper results from, at this point, I think in, well well into the double digits, maybe even into the triple digits of numbers of towns he's researched for me. Oh, wow. While he was looking at Los Angeles, he found a newspaper article entitled Profitable Act of Violence, where the article... Ooh pretty much gives us the loop for the Southern California territory in the early 70s. So here's uh, the sentence. Promoters associated with the Olympic present matches Mondays at Ventura and Costa Mesa, Tuesdays at San Diego and Northridge, Wednesdays at the Olympic, Thursdays at Bakersfield and El Monte, every other Friday at Santa Monica, and I think the alternating every other Friday is at the Olympic. And Saturdays at San Bernardino and El Centro. And I think at least three and maybe four of these cities were not on my list of, of likely candidates. So because of finding this article, I now have a much better lead on how to get more house show records from Southern California, which is one of those territories that we just don't have a lot of info on. We know a lot about the Olympic because they yeah. held shows uh once and sometimes twice a week. They used to do Wednesdays was a hybrid TV taping slash house show where they would show the first few matches live on TV and then the two main events would be uh, not on TV and you'd have to go to the arena. Uh, similar to how Portland did it uh, with their yeah. Saturday shows yeah, and, yeah. Uh, at the sports arena. Uh, and then Fridays, and I think it was every other Friday, was a traditional house show. But yeah, a few of these towns were not on my radar. So now, hopefully, uh, if they have newspapers of their own in uh, El Centro and El Monte and Costa Mesa and Northridge, I can head out west to California and get some more clippings for that territory. That's so, what, what, such a great find. Yeah. And, you know, they, they usually didn't like to admit that there was wrestling every night because in a way it exposes that yeah. it has to be a show if these wrestlers are, are literally doing this seven, you know, seven nights a week. You know, most yeah. of the articles vaguely mention they're on the road 300 nights a year. They wrestle in this place, that place, this place, but they don't necessarily say they wrestle every single night or almost every single night. So it's a rare, it's a, it's a, a rare, honest article about professional wrestling uh, in a newspaper in the 1970s uh, where where the information provided by the promotion 
is accurate. Yeah. And it's not like embellished weird... or, or kayfabed. Yeah, it's like a nice little mini Rosetta Stone for, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, character. as always, uh, our blog is updated regularly at chartingtheterritories.com. It's also the best place to find out how to order the new book, the first of a series of books from Charting the Territories. And this podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. And if you want to hear more of my melodic voice, I was recently on episode number 376 of Between the Sheets with Chris Zellner and David Bixenspan. We talked about it earlier because we were talking about the Double J vignettes that first aired in October of 1993. And that's the period we were talking about on Between the Sheets. Also, by the time you listen to this podcast, I'll be on another podcast that came out, uh, the Winter Palace podcast with Mark Cole at odessasteps.co.uk. And if you're sick of hearing my voice but still want to know what I have to say, I was recently interviewed by Jonathan Snowden, who uh, is the author of one of the best biographies of a wrestler and or MMA fighter that's ever been written. And that was his book on Ken Shamrock. Uh, you can read the interview at his site at hybridshoot.substack.com. And John, if our listeners want to hear your voice again, where can they go? I've made an appearance recently on uh, episode uh, 318 of the, the old school wrestling podcast, where we, we actually mostly just talked about your book. Yeah, well, as well as well you should. Why? How dare you even think about talking about anything else? But well, there's a great picture on uh, on the the link to his podcast of uh, Don Morocco looking unlike the Don Morocco that most people remember. Yeah, because he has the he has the mustache, he has the the, the the mustache and beard, and and it's really if you don't know it's Morocco, it's pretty easy to say who is that. I think someone actually did. Yeah. Uh, as a reply to that tweet, like, who is this in that photo? But yeah, we talked about your book a ton. Uh, talked about just some random Florida matches for no particular reason in angles. Um, talked about Tales from the Territories, which if you haven't watched that show, give that show a shot. Hopefully you like it. Florida coming up this week. Yeah. Well, the Florida uh, will be out by the time uh, this podcast comes out. We're recording this the Sunday uh, before the podcast comes out. And of course, Tales from the Territories is every Tuesday on Vice. I've seen, I saw the first episode and I saw the third episode. Believe it or not, I skipped uh, the Lawler Kaufman episode. Uh, I think that's when I was at a uh, Braves playoff game. I think that that's uh, uh, yeah. I was yep. doing something. And I just haven't gotten around to watching. And of course, that's the one that's getting the rave reviews. Um, but yeah, I will definitely check that out. And I definitely am looking forward to the Florida one, which will yeah, be out by one. the time this podcast yep. comes out. And to be Wild. the first to know when future episodes of Charting the Territories podcast are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, as always, this has been enlightening. I've learned a lot. I'm sure you have too, and I hope our listeners have, have as well. And uh, we're going to see all of them once again in November. Yes. Turkey time, baby. Turkey time, baby. <laughs>